Hello and welcome to episode 56 of Sensational Shiki, live from Yancey Street. Today is Tuesday the 29th of March because um, Monday had a fun little comics related event that I virtually attended and I wrote about for this podcast, which we'll talk about in just a moment. We go over what we're going to discuss on this episode, but that's why we are uh, doing this on a Tuesday. So uh, please note that when we get to the poll list for this week, uh, the DC stuff is already out as of today. I'm sorry if if your shop only gets one copy of everything. Um, I'm, I'm, I apologize. I'm just not able to get the podcast out last night because I wanted to do a great job with covering everything we have for this episode. Which is, uh, we are starting off this week with obviously the news, as usual, which does include some stuff that I went pretty hard on, so I hope you get a little bit of enjoyment from the extra work I put into this one. Um, I have got a, an extended discussion on Poison Ivy's status quo, which is covering everything for her character, pretty much from Heroes in Crisis to her new solo series, which is going to be starting in June. I'm also really happy to have a little bit of information on a brand new project coming from the monstrous creative team, which is of course uh, Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda. I have some the the spoilers on the two Mar- Morbius post credit scenes, which are really something. <laughs> It's comedy, uh, I guess, and not not on purpose. We'll, you'll see. If you've heard about what the reviews of, of Morbius have been, you can imagine the post credit scenes. Uh, but beyond that, uh, we also have some Nova, Marvel Nova project uh, news and speculation, a, a new live action Voltron project, uh, what we know about the Gotham Knights TV show, Behemoth's Acquisition, some ragtime on Donny Cates and the community, uh, the comics community's reaction to the Oscars Awards Ceremony 2022. With Moon Knight premiering tomorrow on Disney Plus, first thing, I obviously have a section on this episode dedicated to what to expect from the show, uh, what I'm hoping is going to be in the show, and I was really happy to find an excellent article, which I have linked at the bottom of this whole, um, the description for this episode should be there. Um, really great article, um, which details um, Egyptian deities, how they're seen in the real world, and their place as they are written in the Marvel Universe. Which I'm really happy to include in there as a lifelong fan of the subject, as well as uh, obviously a comic fan. Um, so that's a really nice crossover uh, for my own interests, so I kind of went hard on um, everything in, with thanks to this article that I found. And Monday, yesterday the 28th, had the Myth of Stanley virtual conversation, which was with Abraham Raisman, who has studied Stanley extensively to write his book, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. The conversation touched on Stan's traditional position within Marvel through the years, his hereditary Jewishness, the controversy of his taking credit on certain projects and the honestly sad situation that he found himself in pretty much all the way up into his death. I took notes throughout the entire event, um, so there's a lot of really good information in there if you weren't able to listen in. Um, yourself, I have all of the discussion that they had covered. 
Um, and while I am still a couple of weeks behind on a few key comic series that I follow, I do have a, still today a good discussion on some really excellent recent comics um, with Bolero number three. Let's call it the pick of the week. That was definitely my favorite of the bunch. And finally, um, last will be the weekly pull list, talking comics that are coming out this Wednesday, tomorrow the 30th. And as I said before, the DC stuff is already out today, the 29th. Obviously, I have not read any of that. Um, I don't even make it to the comic shop until later in the week, but DC's out, Marvel, and everything else is the 30th for the pull list. Before we get started, let's talk about how you can be involved with uh, me on social media or connect there or get involved in uh, the community that I'm trying to get set up here for listeners of the podcast and people of similar of like mind and similar interests let's say um i do have a discord that we are setting up it is by invite only so you can message me if you'd like to get involved in that it's a place that we're trying to set up for a uh, discussion of all things nerdy i suppose with uh you know just aside from that then general chat you know event channels other general categories of things that you can go into and discuss aside from just the nerdy stuff but that will be the core of that. Um, other than that, you can find me on Instagram. My username is Anna with the comics. Uh, on Twitter, I am a savage she geek because sensational was too many letters. My website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. You have to have the .weebly in there, and you do have highlights there on the front page about some characters who are going to be very relevant in the comics and or the movie soon. Madeline Pryor, uh, the Goblin Queen, is going to be important character in upcoming arc of new mutants same as Ileana rasputin aka magic and clea the sorcerer supreme um of earth really now i guess in marvel uh, 616 is supposed to also be in multiverse of madness supposedly we will see how that ends up being uh, but there's a bunch of information on those three characters on the front page of my site other than that there are also um my podcast pod notes which are notes that I take for the podcast. I feel like that's pretty self-explanatory, which you can go through instead of listening to me ramble on and on. And it's obviously there for anyone who is hearing impaired who would also like to take part in, uh, in knowing what we talk about on the podcast. Last, you can find links there for to everywhere that you can listen to this podcast, which is pretty much all podcast hosting apps, including YouTube, where I also post action figure review videos. My most recent uploads went over the entire action figure collection that I have here with my husband, which was a 40 minute long video. And then I went back and added 15 more minutes of extras that I forgot in the first one as an addendum that I posted after the fact. So there's almost an, yeah, almost an hour, whoo, math. It's been a long day. Almost an hour of uh, the tour of our collection there. Um, I also posted an unboxing and review of the animation color Sailor Pluto figure from SH Figure Arts, who I really love, but you will want to see the details before you decide to buy her yourself. I do have a podcast Patreon. It may someday be connected to the Discord, but for now we're not we're not gonna get that deep into it right now. Um, it is I am on there under Sensational She Geek, and it is set up for 
basically just donations to support the podcast. I'm not going to track, you know, whether you do it or don't do it. It's not how we're not, we're not that big of a podcast right now. So, um, we're very chill about all of that. And even in the future, I'm not going to be that kind of, I'm not going to go and say, why did you cancel your, your Patreon thingy? No, that's awkward. <laughs> but there's also, um, linked in my link tree, Kofi Cash Up Venmo PayPal, Maybe other things, go check it out. It is all linked at the bottom of each episode's description. Uh, same as my Redbubble store, which has some cute little designs, um, which you can find as under She Geek Shop on Redbubble, and you can get them put on pretty much anything, because Redbubble is like, uh, what is it, Tea Fury or whatever it was back in the day that. You can just get whatever cheapo <laughs> design and put it on mug, a, a mouse pad, a print for your wall. That's what Redbubble is, so it's fun. What can I say? Without further ado, jumping straight into our Poison Ivy discussion. I did do in 2021 what I was calling hashtag Poison Ivy Watch. Um, I don't know if we're sticking with that. Let me know what you think, but we're just going to do a nice long... Um, Poison Ivy discussion here because her series is coming out in June. We talked about it very briefly on the uh, uh, DC solicitations for June on the last episode. Um, but I want to go more into, I, I didn't have anything prepared at that time, but now I do. Um, I want to go more into the arc of where her character has kind of gone in modern history and um, I would say very recent modern history in the grand scheme of her history. Um, she's quite an old character. Um, and then going into where, based on all of that, um, we think that she's going to be going in this new character, this, this new um, series that they have coming for her, which will be a new section of her story. Um, and that was why I really had Poison Ivy Watch going, <laughs> as I called it, because um, I was trying to, you know, plot out where she was appearing here and there. You know, it was in Batman, it was in Catwoman, it was in Harley Quinn, it was in all these other things. Um, and it was getting more and more to the point that clearly they had plans for her. You know, it looked at one point it was going to be this, one point it was going to be that. But now I'll, I got it all in one big summary here. We're going to cover the whole thing. And then um, see what we all think that means for her coming future in her series. So her new series is, like I said, starting in June of this year, specifically for Pride Month. Now, on that note, um, there was a minor, a, a fairly minor retcon. Um, uh, I guess it was a retcon. I don't know. Um, but some people were kind of like feeling iffy about it. So I'll just, I'll just address it really quick here. I have no issues with DC establishing that Ivy was queer. We'll just say before she ever met Harley, AKA, AKA that, um, Harley was not her, you know, awakening and her first same sex partnership. Um, that, that feels really fine to me to say that, uh, by contrast, you know, the same would feel very, very off about Harley Quinn, who very much did have kind of a life awakening of all kinds of sorts through her developing a relationship with Ivy. So I hope that makes sense. Um, if anybody had thoughts about that, this, the series that's coming in June is going to be written by, it is written by G Willow Wilson who, if you want to see an example of her work with Ivy, she wrote Ivy's story in the Gotham City Anniversaries 
Gotham City Villains Anniversary Giant Number One, free and mouthful, in late November 2021, which had art by Emma Rios. But the series coming in June is going to have art by Marcio Takara. Uh, G. Will Wilson is known for her work. Oh, just hit the, my microphone. For her work with the Sandman universe, creating Kamala Khan, aka Ms. Marvel. Her, she did some work on Wonder Woman, her indie creation alongside Christian Ward, Invisible Kingdom, which I do recommend. It's very good. Uh, I haven't actually finished it myself, but. I got pretty close and then I got behind. So it's really good though. I, re I definitely recommend it. The artist on the series, Marcio Takara, has done a little bit of everything it would seem. Uh, that was my husband coughing if you heard that. <laughs> but I adore his art, which we have seen plenty of examples of Marcio Takara um, when he did these really fantastic spreads of started with Marvel and then did DC female characters that he would add one character to per day and it just became this enormous like spread of it was beautiful um unfortunately when he got a little bit further into the dc one things got to be a little too intense in the instagram and twitter comments um and he just kind of stopped before people started getting real uh, you know giving him th real threats of violence um because people are crazy in case you didn't know um, on the Poison Ivy series, or as of number one, uh, variants that we have so far, I, there's probably going to be a couple more announced, we'll see, but so far, uh, Jessica Fong does the main cover, uh, Warren Lowe does the B cover, Chris Anka is doing the C cover, which is also the cover for Pride Month, Dan Moore is doing the D cover, and that is the total of the standard covers. Then you have Nick Robles on the E cover, which is a 1 of 25 variant, so a comic shop has to order 25 copies of this comic to get one of that one so that's if you're unaware and then the frank show has the uh, f cover which is a one of 50. and paying attention just as a side note to the artists um not necessarily which standard cover they're doing but if they're getting assigned incentive covers like that one of 25 and one of 50 that tends to be uh not always but tends to be a really good uh way to track industry trends of artist popularity and demand as well so just putting that out there um, in case you've ever thought about that We'll start this whole thing really by uh, going over the solicitation that they've given us for poison ivy number one it says, Pamela Isley has been a lot of things in her life, a living god, a supervillain, an activist, a scientist, and dead. In a new body that she didn't ask for, and with renewed sense of purpose, Ivy leaves Gotham and sets out to complete her greatest work, a gift to the world that will heal the damage dealt to it by ending humanity. Spinning out of the pages of Batman, DC is proud to present the unbelievable next chapter of Poison Ivy's life by the incredible creative team Jubilee Wilson and Marcio Takara. All right. To recap, um, we're going to spend some time here going over, as I said, what's been going on at Ivy, at Ivy, what's going on with Ivy at good old DC uh, of late-ish. I think uh, Heroes in Crisis was what, 2017? Okay, apparently it was 2018. Um, so we're going to go over everything as far back as Heroes in Crisis. Although that is technically technically further if you add in what Tiny and 
put in for his addendums for a period in time, I think just before that, um, when he when Tom King was doing an arc with Ivy taking over pe the heroes, if you remember that, um, he added some stuff and it's kind of confusing. Um, but anyway, in Tom King and Clayman's Heroes in Crisis, which I highly recommend, um, Wally West kills a bunch of DC characters at a sort of mental health retreat for the capes of the world, both good and bad alike. It included on that list Poison Ivy, and I remember being a fan of her. Um, I remember reading it at the time and really not being happy with that outcome, of course, but also I remember thinking, you know, I knew it already. Tom King was a great writer, so I remember thinking, trust Tom King, see what he's doing with this. He has got to have a point with this. It doesn't really seem like him to just kind of kill her off, and eh, doesn't really seem like him. And lo and behold, I was right. Uh, at the end of the series, Wally successfully resurrects Poison Ivy as something new. She is reborn from the green itself, which kind of established her as something along the lines um, a swamp thing, an elemental of the green, but without the same responsibilities, I guess, or title as a sort of like emissary of the green as Alec Holland and other swamp things have been. There's specific terminology that I'm missing, but um, she's not the big important big guy. She's she's a, she's a part of it, but he's like the big guy. I don't think that helps, but whatever. After her resurrection, this new story for Ivy picks up with Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy, which was a six-issue series that came from Jody Hauser and Adriana Mello, with some of the best connecting covers that I have seen still to date. The series followed the two of them, obviously on a run from Gotham, as Ivy just came back to life and is still adjusting, and Harley was being hunted down by her own problems that she had going on. The series had Jason Woodrow, aka the Floronic Man, as the antagonist, trying to take down Ivy because he feels basically that the power she has is growing, um, and he, he wants it for himself, more or less. Um, it's it's important to note this, I think, because Woodrow is then later retconned to have had a romantic teacher-student history with Ivy uh, by James Tynion, which is, you know, just more creepy men and their creepy fantasy relationships. Um, it's like it's still given in comics to this day. But I digress. Um, the Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy series did end with them getting away from him, but then it is revealed uh, at the very end of the series that uh, the Ivy that Harley has been with since very early on in these issues uh, was an outshoot, so to say. She was a clone of herself, incomplete of the full Ivy, Poison Ivy personality. Uh, it, this, she's just this extra version of herself that Ivy accidentally created because she has all these new powers and things going on that she doesn't really fully understand or grasp yet. So then uh, when the real Ivy is like spying on her mini, her not, not mini me, her clone me um, and Harley and sees that Harley takes a bigger, bigger liking, a better liking, I guess, to this new, I guess, lesser version of Ivy. Uh, she was, it was obviously very triggering <laughs> for her. Um, and so she takes off on her own in the end of the series, bad and heartbroken. So it's also kind of worth noting at this time in DC canon, these two were not confirmed as a romantic couple of any kind. Um, later it is revealed they do have a, a history of romance, but it was being 
kind of denied to them on um to them both in this series so i guess you could say that due to the the now them now being confirmed having always not always but having long been in a romance that they were at this time i don't know it gets kind of complicated because they just spent so long denying the two of them uh being able to do that also uh the plot with woodrow and the um the florinic man you know and the parl uh, the parliament of trees and everything that started in those six issues of harlequin and poison ivy it has never been mentioned again, which does suck because I was getting really ready to soak up some sick plant lore for the DC universe. I thought it was going to be cool and nothing's happened with it. So jump to when we next see Ivy, which is during the Joker Warzone tie-in of 2020 by Sam Johns and Laura Braga. In this short story... Uh, Ivy goes looking for Harley in a kind of secret cave place in Gotham that she seems to have made for her. Ivy seems to have made for Harley, surrounded by all kinds of vines and greenery. However, uh, when she gets there, she sees Joker gang members who have shown up looking for Harley. And Ivy just goes ahead and burns the whole place down with them inside. At this point, Harley is off trying to kill the Joker with Batman or something. Uh, so Ivy basically sees this as her once again choosing the Joker over her. Um, and she obviously takes that personally and she takes on a new moniker, Queen Ivy, and starts at that point winding her vines through Gotham. Now that was the end of 2020. So uh, in 2021, we have Fear State um, and the various coinciding Catwoman Harley Quinn. Catwoman? Yeah, the Catwoman and Harley Quinn issues, both of them. Um, and that's where we have Ivy, who it's between that and Batman is where we see her for the most of 2021. Um, but it is in all of those issues it's revealed that it's revealed um, that the part of Ivy that's split off from the main is actually um, the part of her that's like kind of the harmless, peace-loving side of her. And Queen Ivy is what you might call the cruel remains, um, who I guess was using her vines to get ready to destroy Gotham and also making her plants kill people or each other. I don't know. It was, it was a little bit fuzzy to me. The whole thing with the Ivy's role and all of that just didn't quite make sense to me. Uh, but then we get, we get introduced to the gardener who is then we find out later one of Pamela's first loves from college, you know, like very good for them. Um, and then the weird gross retcon that, after they had a thing, she Ivy ends up having a sexual relationship with her older professor. Um, thanks, Tinyan. But women don't need to be taken advantage of physically to get revenge over someone. <laughs> to want to get revenge over someone. Like, that's not what's required. She could have still just hated him because, you know, to ruined her career or something less gross like that. Anyway, um, in the Secret Files Gardener one-shot, it explains um, her and Ivy's relationship. The Gardener's a she. I don't know if anybody picked up on that. Um, uh, uh, explains their relationship and the whole two Ivy's, good Ivy, bad Ivy, all over again. Um, but it's, it's the whole thing I was saying earlier about it kind of like brings the Gardener into it during that in the past when Tom King was writing Ivy and Batman 
like he he pulls he says he reveals that she was like somehow involved with stuff out there. I don't know. It was it's all very fuzzy for me. Um point being when it's all said and done, Ivy gets back to being whole again and then she and Harley finally can have their romance canonized. And I think that's actually in a Batman issue which happens, which kinda sucks, but you know. It's happened and that's what matters. We're almost caught up now. So in late December, we have Harley Quinn number 10 and DC has writer Stephanie Phillips take Harley and Ivy on a date to a museum where Ivy makes a plan to steal some crazy thing and Harley is upset by it. It was not a good setup for the breakup that followed, in my opinion, because Ivy has never really seemed to be the one in their group of people they know who would come up with the crazy spur of the moment plans like that. If anything, that was Ollie's Harley shtick. It felt very out of character for somebody who was also just made whole again. Um, in any case, the two of them break up, leaving us with the idea that Ivy has no intention to stop being recklessly villainous. Enter G. Willow Wilson's story of Ivy in the villain's uh, Gotham whatever giant, and you're pretty much up to speed. My fear for Ivy's character development is that DC is going to try and make her a full-blown hero the way they're trying to do with Harley. Looking at the solicitation for the first issue of her new series, they're saying her body is entirely new, which honestly I'm not sure (laughs) what that's referring to. If it's referring to what was just happening with the tiny and stuff, or if it's referring to her having been resurrected in a completely new form in Heroes in Crisis. I genuinely have no idea um, which of those it's it's talking about, but if it is something more recent than Heroes in Crisis having happened, maybe that explains why she has dropped the earthen, green-skinned look that I actually prefer, uh, which I guess... Yeah, I guess it would have to be tied into the gardener thing. I don't know. We'll, we'll we'll see if they mention it. But more importantly, they are saying that she's still on a villain's path. So this one probably won't end with her trying to be a hero or something. At least for good. Uh, based on her previous story, I can see Wilson trying to write or writing Ivy um, off into some small backwoods town and ending up saving ending up having her save it from like a big oil conglomerate or something like that. Whatever it is, I can't see it being entirely about Ivy trying to end humanity. I think we're just going to be starting there. In my opinion, long-term Ivy should be established as a sort of Deadpool-style anti-hero, kind of uh, what she's been in the past before, I guess, where she'll destroy like a mining facility that creates or funds cartels or something. Um, but she would like save or spare a child from the cartel as she wipes them out, you know, that kind of thing. Next up for discussion is the new Monstrous Creative Teams project. Did I get those words out in the right order? The 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 Monstrous Teams new creative project. There we go. Um, and this is all taken information that was taken from Entertainment Weekly, who were the ones to officially announce this. The team of Sana Takeda and Marjorie Liu are creating a trilogy of adult graphic novels from Abrams Comics Arts titled The Night Eaters. The first installment, The Night Eaters, She Eats the Night, will be in stores October 11th. 
what Entertainment Weekly had to say about the plot. It says the story follows Chinese-American twins Millie and Billy, who are struggling to keep their restaurant afloat and dealing with several other personal and professional failures when their parents, Aipo and Kion, arrive for a visit. Having immigrated from Hong Kong before the twins were born, Aipo and Kion have supported their children through thick and thin and are ready to lend a hand, but they're starting to wonder, has their support made Millie and Billy incapable of standing on their own? That doesn't sound so horrific, does it? Just wait. When Aipo forces them to clean her house, to help her clean up the house next door, a hellish rundown ruin that was the scene of a grisly murder, the twins are in for a night of terror, gore, and supernatural mayhem that reveals there's much more to Ipo and her children than meets the eye. Marjorie Liu had to say at a quote about the series, she said, I cannot begin to express how delighted I am to be creating another series with Sana Takeda. The Night Sisters, or sorry, the Night Eaters is an exciting shift for us, both in art and writing style, a contemporary Asian American horror story and urban fantasy. And we are deeply grateful to Abrams Comics Arts for this opportunity to push ourselves creatively. Sana Takeda describes the Night Eaters as a wonderful challenge. There was a great monstrous description from Entertainment Weekly that follows that note of it being a wonderful challenge um, from Takeda, it says, if you've seen some of the visuals that she's created in Monstrous, including, but not limited to, a demonic island hunted, haunted by starving ghosts, a coven of witches ruled by tentacled monstrosities, and an abandoned laboratory full of ravenous, rotting cyborgs, that should make you eager to see what Takeda and Lou have come up with, their, come up with for their new projects. And to add a bonus second amazing description of Monstrous from Entertainment Weekly that was on the same page, the past decade has produced a lot of great comics, but few can compete with the unique power of Monstrous. The epic, the epic fantasy horror saga from Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda have few, has fused disparate influences. The animal spirits of Hayao Miyazaki films, the cosmic monsters of H.P. Lovecraft stories, the inventive technology of steampunk into a moving art about mothers and daughters, war and peace, and how divisions can be bridged. I always recommend Monstrous to everyone I know who reads comics. Moving on to something that I think is just going to be a nice fun one. The Morbius spoiler post-credit scene discussion. I'm excited here for- this will be a fun one. Um, now this is a completely aside from the bad reviews that it's getting in general. Um, what I've heard basically is just don't- don't waste your money on a ticket. And the source on this I do have linked below. Um, it is YouTuber Landry, I'm assuming is how that's pronounced, who did see the French premiere. Um, I saw the rundown that they did on Reddit by a user that I, again, I'm linking this in the description for this episode, which you can find down below. And obviously, spoilers for Morbius, um, not so much the movie, but obviously the end credit scenes and potentially the future of whatever Sony's doing. Okay, so the first scene uh, is the purple rift from the end, and I'm quoting this directly because I did not feel like having to 
uh, rewrite what this guy said about the scene. He says, The purple rift from the end of No Way Home shows up, indicating that the multiversal villains are being sent back to their respective universes. This somehow leads Tombs, Adrian Tombs being the vulture, uh, being sent from his MCU prison cell to a prison cell in the Morbius universe. Tombs is later freed from prison because they can't incarcerate him, since there are no records of him doing any crimes in this universe. Okay, and scene one um response being <laughs> that's not that's not how strange's spell worked <laughs> um it sent displaced characters into the mcu right that was the first thing um and then it sent them back to their own universes from the mcu tombs is from the mcu though originally why would he be taken to the sony verse even i was i was thinking like even if they try to say that he's from the sony verse like first of all why <laughs> uh and how second of all like i still don't think strange spell would have done that because uh, i don't know but that's if they're gonna try and backtrack on this at all that's what they're gonna say is that he's from the sony verse in the first place Whatever bullshit explanation they get for that. Second scene, um, second post-credit scene is Michael Morbius is driving a car heading to a desert. He hears a noise that makes him get out of his car to investigate, and he notices something far away approaching him. <laughs> it's revealed to be the Vulture in the MCU suit somehow. Vulture then talks to Morbius and then tells him he wants to get revenge on Spider-Man, asking him if he wants to join him in his endeavor. Morbius accepts. First of all, the setup of that scene is so bad. So lame. Um, regardless of the fact that what I, the, the one thing I'll say about the whole movie uh, that I've heard is um, it has a like early 2000s era plot um, pattern. Based on this one scene in the end credit description, of I can I've literally I'm sure we've literally seen this before where some someone's like driving out in the desert and he like stops and gets out of the car and looks and sees out in the distance someone coming towards him like we've seen that many times I'm sure <laughs> it's kind of a bygone era and what they're doing it and it's just like he's flying but then he's he hears him first and then he the poor he sees him, I don't know whatever that's just one point. Another point, <laughs> where did he get his vulture suit? I guess that would have to require um, either, you know, the same kind of alien invasion having happened in the Sony-verse and he had the same parts available for him there, which is highly unlikely, or it would have to go back to, oh, he's from the Sony-verse, which I still think they're probably going to say, but again, why would he have that vulture suit there? Did he send it home to himself? Like, what? <laughs> I can't figure out a way to make that one work. Um, but finally, why does Morbius give a shit about Spider-Man? Um, there was all this talk that, you know, maybe Spider-Man was already in that universe because of the poster or whatever that was in the background or the paper, whatever it was. Um, I don't think that was the Tom Holland Spider-Man, which is a Spider-Man that, that Vulture has interacted with. Maybe he just doesn't care. <laughs> and why would 
he care about Spider-Man? Again, like, we, he has no history through this movie with Spider-Man. That's another thing from the movie, I guess. But why would he want to fight him? <laughs> It just it's just kind of it's just kind of funny like he just wants to agree to mess up a teenager with him for shits and giggles like all right dude let's do this okay one thing you do have to note also is this film was filmed this film I should really just say this movie uh, <laughs> let me start um, this movie was filmed in 2019 so a lot a lot has changed since then for starters. Global pandemic, you know, that's one thing. But it's been three years. It's been three years since they filmed this. It's, we're on we're on New Mutants level of re rewriting and reshooting. <laughs> um, so just keep that in mind. Tons of stuff has changed, especially plans for Spider-Man movies, um, since they have kind of flopped back from taking Spider-Man, Spider-Man, Spider-Man from the MCU. Um, and then not, and then all this stuff was kind of like flipping back and forth. It was, it was just, and then, and this is all before No Way Home and all that stuff they did. So the scene was obviously done like really recently filmed. I just, it was, I just imagine that this was such a mess of two post-credit scenes because since basically this movie was originally supposed to come out in 2019, things just have been on fire since then. So that's why, that's why it's such a mess. <laughs> in the realm of Nova news, we now know that Marvel is developing a Nova project with Sabir Pirzada, who is a, a creator on Moon Knight, uh, the TV show, on the helm. Now this is coming from Deadline, so it is probably super legit, and that is why I am not calling it a rumor. There is no word yet as to if it will be a movie or a TV show, but we do know that Kevin Feige will be on board as usual to produce. If you are sitting there asking yourself, who is Nova? Nova, well, let's tell you. The first Nova was Richard Rider, appearing in Nova Number 1 by Marv Wolfman in 1976. He was a member of the Nova Corps, who are a protective force of the Andromeda Galaxy, headed from the planet of Xandar, uh, as seen in the MCU's Guardians of the Galaxy. The Nova Corps themselves first appeared in Fantastic Four number 205 in 1979. As for him himself, he is an Earthman turned intergalactic space cop. He's a bit complicated in his history as he has died at least twice and was stuck in the Cancerverse for quite some time. Put in, a, put, put in the Cancerverse, we'll talk about that some other day. He's been a member of the United Front, the New Warriors, Defenders, Champions of Xandar, Secret Avengers, Nova Corps, of course, and Guardians of the Galaxy. And has a he's had a long long-standing off and on romantic history with Gamora. His history is very much tied up with cosmic characters, and we are expecting to see soon that we are expecting to see soon in the MCU, such as Adam Warlock. Now then after him we have Nova Sam Alexander, who was created by Jeff Loeb and Ed McGuinness, first appearing in Marvel Point One, number one, in 2011, just before Marvel's big all-new, all-different era, which I personally remember extremely fondly. 
Sam's father, Jesse Alexander, had a black Nova helmet of the supernovas, which, unlike a regular Nova star helmet, which receives its power directly from the Nova force via the Xandarian world mind, the supernovas receive their powers from onboard reactors inside their helmets. What that basically means is Sam could use his dad's helmet without needing to connect with the home base and have them know anything. Anyway, Sam's dad, Jesse, hasn't been, uh, he hasn't been made relevant enough of a character or a Nova in the comics to warrant theories that he would be the Nova in question. Um, Sam, meanwhile, he has been a member of the Nova Corps, the New Warriors, the New Avengers, the Avengers, S.H.I.E.L.D., and the Champions. Since there are multiple iterations of this character, I'd honestly guess that Disney will make something about Sam before Richard. Richard is your Hal Jordan legacy character, and yes, Novas can be closely compared to Green Lanterns. And the MCU has a history of already picking um, newer versions of legacy characters to spotlight more or less first or as the long-term goals of their projects. That being said, the MCU is also very well known for taking a couple of different aspects of comic book origins, um, an origin or origins, and puzzling them together to create an, or, um, an original origin that is rooted in the comics, so we'll more than likely see them both at some point or other. Additionally, Disney has already um, been very open um, for quite a long time uh, that they have a continued interest and investment in both Nova characters, Sam and Richard. So there you go. It's not really a, rich, a question of who we'll see, it's who we'll see first. And then there is also the point of Sam Alexander, the younger Nova, having been introduced around the time of and taking part in all new, all different Marvel. Because my husband and I have theorized for quite a while now that all new, all different is actually the long-term goal for the MCU. Because let's think about this for a second. Who are the new big players of the MCU? Sam Wilson, Captain America, Jane Foster, Thor, Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel, Miles Morales, Spider-Man, The Vision, Ant-Man, Doctor Strange, Riri Williams, and Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, in that era, all of those characters are all new, all different. <laughs> A good portion of those make up the all new, all different Avengers. I think it's pretty much all of them, aside from... I think they actually had Iron Man for a little bit. I'm not, I don't recall. He died and then it was a whole thing. Um, point being, we are over halfway there to all new, all different. Um, you know, we're not sure the future of what visions he's going to be around. You know, we know that. Um, Jane Foster, Thor, who knows how long she's going to be around, but we're going to have Kamala. We're going to have Riri. We're going to have um, some kind of magic person like Strange. Miles, I would call long game too. So this is just my theory. It's just the theory. The news of Voltron, the live action movie. Uh, Rawson Marshall Thurber, who apparently wrote Red Notice, is co-writing and directing the Voltron project. Thurber himself created the story and Ellen Shanman will be joining him to co-write Voltron. Todd Lieberman and David Hoberman. Hmm are set to produce the film alongside Bob Copler, who is the head of World Events Productions, which is the company that currently owns the Voltron property. Um, they are selling it. 
Warner Brothers, Universal, and Amazon are among the, quote, six or seven studios and streamers that are fighting currently for the rights of this live-action Voltron movie. Rights to do that. Um, Notably, Netflix has all eight seasons of Voltron Legendary Defender, which is the 2016 animated show for Voltron, which is really good also, in my opinion. Um, But they are, for some reason, not in the running for seeking the live action rights. With that in mind, my guess is it will be Warner Brothers who wins out. They have a lot of very similar projects. If you have no idea what Voltron is, um, in their own words, it's a show and kind of those comics, subsequent media, we'll say that, um, that focuses on, quote, five young pilots in a battalion named the Robot Lions, which are vehicles that join together to form mega robot known as Voltron. Uh, basically think Power Rangers in space <laughs> or anything that has human piloted mech robots who fight and possibly team up. Gundams, Neon Genesis Evangelion, Genlock, Mech X4, etc., etc. There's so many. <laughs> uh, especially when you go into like anime and manga and stuff a bit more. There's a lot. Granted, uh, they do usually work better animated, so I have admittedly low expectations for this. But it should be at least entertaining. I did love Pacific Rim, the first one at least. Um, and one of the, was one of the things that I, I always like to say, give me giant monsters or robots and I will probably have a great time with it, plot regardless. <laughs> Gotham Knights had a show update this week and we are talking, yes, show, not game. I feel like it was a terrible decision to name both things Gotham Knights, but I digress. The news is part one, Misha Collins has been cast as Harvey Dent, specifically D.A. Harvey Dent, District Attorney Harvey Dent. So the show might actually show his origin as Two-Face. Kind of interesting. Previous Two-Face actors, of course, include Billy D. Williams, Tommy Lee Jones, and Aaron Eckhart. They were really on a roll with those three names thing. Uh, second bit of news is that Anna Lore has been cast as Stephanie Brown, aka Spoiler, and that was announced just yesterday, which I have no further details on. Um, the show is another one coming from the CW, so take with that what you will. Um, and the plot, which I read a really cringy, this makes it sound terrible, and it probably, it might, it might be terrible, so, um, I don't know, but it, somebody wrote the plot description as one sentence, Children of villains as Gotham's new protectors. That sounds terrible. <laughs> it sounds like um, a DC version of The Descendants. You know, there's a Disney Channel show or, or are they movies? I think they're movies. <laughs> I like Disney and I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't watch that. So I don't know if this is going to really, really be for me. Um, if it's going to be like that. Uh, the, 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 the further explanation that they had on their site is... Uh, It will follow a team of teen heroes as they protect Gotham City in the wake of Batman's death, while also attempting to clear their names after being framed for his murder. Other cast members already announced include... Also, my theory is Batman's not dead. Just putting that out there now. Uh, Other cast members include... We have Oscar Morgan as Turner Hayes, um, who is a new character created for the show who is described as, quote, the rebellious adoptive son of Bruce Wayne. Um, In other words, the CW is making the bold move of devising its own Robin instead of one who already exists in comics. 
uh, the description that they have for him here, taken in by the bat after the murder of his biological parents, Turner is determined to live up to his mentor's memory. But while charming and soulful, Turner has never felt comfortable living in a world of wealth and world of wealth of, and privilege. Wealth of privilege? Is that really a thing? I guess it works. Okay. We also have actress Navia Zareli uh, Robinson as Carrie Kelly, which is really interesting. Carrie Kelly, of course, is the first ever fe created female Robin who was um, first debuted in Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns in 1986. Her TV counterpart here is described as idealistic and plucky as hell, and is noted to have talked her way into becoming Batman's sidekick. It says, if there's a burning need, oh, it was a building burning or someone in need, Carrie will be the first to rescue, just as long as she's home by curfew. Oh, that's, that sounds stupid. I'm sorry. Not very good descriptions. Um, Olivia Rose Keegan is playing a character called Duela, who is, of course, going to be Duela Dent. Um, <laughs> um, Duela Dent in the comics is often referred to as Joker's daughter, but she has, through the decades, played or claimed to be, rather, um, daughter of pretty much every DC major bat villain that there is. Um, the show version here is labeled as, quote, abrasive, unpredictable, and a little unhinged. That sounds kind of right. It says Duela was born in Arkham Asylum and abandoned by her father, the most dangerous man in Gotham. But as a born survivor, Duela forged herself into a brutal fighter and skilled thief. Then there is Fallon Smythe as Harper Rowe, uh, Harper being Bluebird in the comics, and uh, the only thing that I really know her from is Young Justice Outsiders, where she's voiced by Zara Fazal. On this show, she is described as a, uh, as hmm, blue-haired bisexual Harper is streetwise acerbic? That can't possibly be a word and often underestimated. She's a gifted engineer who can fix anything, but she really wants to repair the broken lives of her and her brother, Colin, the only person she truly trusts. And apparently Colin is a minor character from the Colin Elks, who is played here by D uh, Tyler DeCiria. Um, and it says, after years of hiding his true self from an abusive parent, transgender teen Colin is tired of being polite and agreeable. Clever and adept at reading human nature, he's now ready to fight his own battles. That is what we have so far for the character descriptions of um, the main characters on Gotham Knights, the show. Um, and that will premiere this winter if you are interested. Which honestly, no shame if you're interested in the CW shows. I just, they're, they're ones that I like and they're ones that I don't like. It's just kind of hit and miss. So this one may hit a lot for people. Good for them. Good for you. Behemoth has been acquired this week by Sumerian Records. Sumerian Records is known as a indie label for rock, alternative, and metal with several recent Grammy nominations. The label's artists include Asking Alexandria, Blackville Bride, Smashing Pumpkins, Meg Myers, and Lilith Star. I imagine more beyond that too. In this act, they are also expressing their intention as Sumerian, Sumerian's intention to increase their film and TV development. Behemoth is a comic book publisher and game developer. Uh, for comics, I know that they have done A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, You Promised Me Darkness. I'm not sure what how you say this, but it's just this the one that's MFKZ. I don't know if you say it out loud or if you just say MFKZ. 
etc. than others like that. Um, Behemoth has already also had partnerships or created partnerships with Nintendo, Microsoft, and Sony that are currently in place for upcoming video games. And there is a quote here on the acquisition from Ash Avildsen, Avildsen, the Sumerian Records founder slash CEO. He says, uh, and when he says Ryan and Nathan, they seem to be the co-founders of Behemoth. Nathan and Ryan have built Behemoth so quickly and independently with such a great original IP selection of characters, worlds, and story. It was an easy decision to team up with these very talented young mavericks when the opportunity arose. They have great taste. Having a diligent, proven team in comics, graphic novels, and gaming is paramount to Sumerian as we continue our passion for storytelling across all audio and visual spectrums. We will also be discovering creating or developing IP into books, episodic series, feature films, animation, and beyond. And from Nathan Yoakum, the co-founder of Behemoth, he says, after 15 plus years of publishing the boundaries of what an independent record label can achieve, it's an incredible reward for us to be joining the Sumerian family today. While we're proud of what we've accomplished over the last few years, Ryan and myself couldn't pass on the opportunity to align visions with Ash and enter this incredible next chapter of endless possibilities and growth as Sumerian comics and games. The power the power and weight that the Sumerian name carries is real, and the future of Sumerian has never looked so positive. So does that mean Behemoth is now called Sumerian Comics and Games? I believe so. Uh, more on that if I figure it out. But that's great news. Um, I am always pro... Not pro takeovers, if that's what this was, which it does not sound like it. Um, but pro getting more of these stories translated into different mediums uh, for people to enjoy in other ways. Because not everybody likes comics, you know? But the stories are still good. We have a rumor update for Secret Invasion, which is that Amelia Clark is now rumored more specifically to be Queen Veranke in the Secret Invasion TV show, who is the, of course, Scroll Queen. That does not mean that she's not going to be Spider-Woman for any amount of time, as Veranke does imitate Jessica Drew's Spider-Woman for a good long period. In fact, she is best known for impersonating Spider-Woman and working for Nick Fury as a double agent while also leading her army of scrolls to invade and conquer Earth. Also, Zawe Ashton has already been announced as the villain of the Marvels, but that doesn't mean that the villains have to be the same as in Secret Invasion, though they'll be premiering around the same time. If we're still talking scroll invasion, though, maybe Zawe Ashton is actually playing Spider-Woman, and Amelia Clark, uh, the true appearance of Veranke, or, you know, vice versa, since they can don anyone's appearance. Apparently, there are also theories that she may, she being Veranke, may already be in the MCU in the form of Julia Louise Dreyfus's Contessa Valentina, who has now appeared in both The Falcon and the Winter Soldier and Black Widow. Um, my personal theory, our theory in the house here, is uh, still that Secret Invasion might be actually about the Pink Cree, who can blend in as Caucasian humans perfectly. Um, I think the Pink Cree might be infiltrating Earth leadership, as opposed to the Scrolls, who have already been established as pro-Earth 
more or less, more or less. Of course, they could always be doing the, you know, extremist offshoot thing and keep it as scrolls. Uh, the series also stars Ben Mendelsohn as Talos, uh, Kingsley Benadir as the main villain, whoever that's going to be. I don't think they've announced that yet. Um, and then we also have Olivia Coleman, Killian Scott, and Christopher McDonald, who have also been cast in undescrolled roles. This one, we don't have an official announced time for when this is going to be premiering, um, but um, we know that the Marvels was pushed up to, I believe it was February 2023, and this is going to be coming out around that same time. So either late 2022 or early 2023 is when we can see Secret Invasion. Now to to jest a little bit uh, on behalf of or on uh, at Donny Cates was at Donny Cates um because I can um, uh, uh, he has this new character Titan who is pretty much universally being called Hulk's version of Noel. <laughs> um, if you're familiar with comics, if you're not familiar with what that means, uh, here's a his line from Bleeding Cool's Rich Johnson. So Donny Cakes and Ryan Otley created Null, the god of the symbiotes, in their Marvel comics Venom and the Venom-related comic books. And now that they're on Hulk, apparently, they're doing the same thing with Hulk. A god of Hulks? Getting a little immortal on us? So there's two things here. One, what he means by getting a little immortal on us is... Well, Al Ewing just ish last year finished spending 50 issues writing Immortal Hulk to establish that the Hulks were created by Marvel Universe's God, basically, in order to have, in opposite to them, um, the God, to have darkness opposite to their light. So the Hulks already have a God, the one above all, who was known through the series as the one below all before that reveal. It's a whole thing. Um, so again, this is Donny Cates kind of failing to do anything um, new. Um, you know, either, either way you look at it, really, this is him kind of redoing what Al Ewing did and also repeating what he did with Venom. <laughs> so that's two points there um, I guess Donny Cates kind of busted his load on Thanos which he had the help of Jim Starlin with um, and he hasn't actually done anything really universe changing or truly um, noteworthy in my opinion since then um, I don't really know what nothing really changed with the whole Noel thing I think something changed with Venom but did not overall change anything in the whole overall picture of how things were. They always say that with events though, so I guess I gotta blame the editors a lot too. Um, speaking of that, <laughs> uh, Donny Cates asked people on Twitter about a month ago to stop calling this character Titan Hulk's Knoll. Poor guy, because it was the damn editor of, of this comic, Will Moss, who was the one to say this new threat is basically the Hulk's Knoll. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. It was the editor. Donnie, ask your boss. He's the one who did it. <laughs> anyway. Uh, the last thing here on the news that I wanted to mention was the comic community reacting to the Oscars 2022. And of course, by that I mean Chris Rock being slapped in the face by Will Smith. Um, 
which was fun to see the internet's reaction for for just that night but then like everything since then is like all right i'm tired of hearing about this so i hope i'm not overdoing it for you get doing overkill of this topic but the comic community had some vaguely entertaining responses um the first response is not the comic community it's just my favorite response overall which was obviously from twitter um and i don't have who tweeted it but it says if you're chris rock you're thinking one thing can i make a joke so good he punches me a second time (laughs) okay okay sorry the uh, ryan stegman artist has to say about the moment if a million people retweet this i will slap zartsky at the next eisner ceremony repeatedly eisner's being like the oscars of comic books Steve Lieber tweeted, I feel like the Eisners could learn something from this. And Carla Pacheco tweeted, I promise to totally slap everyone at the Eisners if I'm ever invited. That's it. It was just some wholesome comic funnies. All right, Moon Knight time. Uh, Moon Knight, of course, premieres on Disney Plus Wednesday the 30th, which from my perspective right now is tomorrow. Um, Oscar Isaac, I, I believe it was Oscar Isaac who clarified this week that this show is not for children. So please bear that in mind as we go through these episodes th- the next couple of weeks. The first appearance of Moonlight in the comics was uh, Werewolf by Night number 32 in 1975 um, where he was introduced uh, for that very brief time as somewhat of a Batman-like character yes but he's no longer anything like Batman so it's a bad comparison to make Um, he was pretty much um, just out to be a mercenary at that point he's he's developed a lot since then Um, but his whole shtick Moon Knight is an emissary of the Egyptian god Khonshu Uh, the like official rundown of what his um what his whole thing is i don't remember where i found this rundown but it's it's a great real rundown it says while on a mission in sudan he witnessed the murder of archaeologist peter alron alron sure at the hands of the infamous terrorist raul bushman he confronted bushman after saving alron's daughter marlene but it didn't go so well for mark and he was left for dead in the desert marlene took him to a nearby tomb that of pharaoh seti the third where he lay mortally wounded in front of the statue of the egyptian moon god Khonshu. he died then came back to life fully healed claiming Khonshu wanted him to be the moon knight or the fist the moon's knight or the fist of Khonshu, reviving his life of violence reviving his life of violence to protect the and avenge the innocent though it does get kind of warped here and there this is, i want to go through some points uh to remember before the show um it does get warped here and there but mark specter does have did he has dissociative identity disorder um his other personalities being jake lockley and stephen grant the origins of those two identities come from incidents during specter's childhood and a young adult life for the most part it is also related to his ptsd as a soldier and more recently uh, marvel has been portraying ptsd with a number of character for a number of characters um with fair amount of grace including uh recently in the falcon and the winter soldier so with that in mind um i i i can be completely sure here that his mental health condition uh will be that for the dissociative identity disorder or the ptsd or whatever else they're going to say that it might be um because there are a lot of different takes from the comics uh, it's going to be a large part of the plot no matter what it is uh one thing oscar isaac says is our job our job was to kind of put a lens on the things that had the most dramatic juice and ultimately take the mental health aspect incredibly seriously 
The comics do portray Mark and his family as Jewish. It's actually an old family friend that triggered um, the first ra- round, really, of Mark's DID. It was Rabbi Yitz Perlman who was revealed to actually be Ernst, a Nazi deserter and serial killer of Jewish people. It's fun. Uh, Mark being a son of a rabbi who escaped Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia as a child. This portrayal and attempted murder are traumatic to Mark, ultimately setting off his experiences with DID, childhood trauma. Uh, Moon Knight is also a solo hero. The comics have seen Spectre work alongside the West Coast Avengers, the Secret Avengers, and the Heroes for Hire. However, his heroics fall along the line of the likes of Deadpool, Punisher, and others. He does have a daughter in the comics. Her name is Deatrice Alrain. Alron. Uh, she was conceived within, during an on-again, off-again romance with Marlene Alron, who was that daughter of the archaeologist friend of Marx, who he saved in his origin. Uh, the, his daughter doesn't really come into the picture until many, many years after his time as Moon Knight, um, so it's not really something we should expect to see right away. Mr. Knight is a more recent personality for Mark to take on. He is a detective kind of character who wears a white business suit for, with his uh, kind of Moon Knight headgear, materializing to help with investigations, meet with a psychiatrist, and help civilians. Many people are suspecting that the character of Layla, we've heard of in the trailers, is a replacement for Marlene, which remains to be seen. And um, in more recent Avengers storylines from Jason Aaron, <clears throat> excuse me, Contu took over the city of Manhattan to keep Mephisto from taking over the world, more or less is what was going on, uh, calling the city New Thebes City. Moon Knight was able to adopt the Phoenix Force and imprison Contu in Asgard. Will this play into the show? Unlikely. But... One thing notable from the storyline, Khonshu is freaking terrified of Mephisto. Uh, Marvel's the devil, basically, so I can see that part being relevant. I did see one article that was theorizing, oh yeah, Khonshu's gonna take over Manhattan at the end of the series. Why would they do that? <laughs> I, just, I just don't see that being at all relevant. Um, the series that I think will be seeing the most influence on the show is the 2016 Lemire Moon Knight, which began in a mental hospital but spent much of its time making the reader question what's real and what isn't, showing immense differences between Mark's various realities. This also this run also smoothed out a lot of questions regarding Mark's dissociative identity disorder, including the origins of his personalities, where they came from, and what inspired them. It established a more solid Jewish family history for Mark and the Spectres, which itself, again, ties directly into Mark's DID history. One line from the description of the show Moon Knight from Disney um, is that the synopsis promises us a, quote, deadly mystery among the powerful gods of Egypt. So now I'm going to go into other gods that we might or possibly will for some of these see in Moon Knight, starting off, of course, with Khonshu. Uh, Mythology's Khonshu. Oh, I also want to... before I get started, this is most of what I got here, if not all of it. Um, I literally googled Egyptian deities in the Marvel Universe, and I found this amazing article from like a week ago on Nerdist from Rodem Rusak. It's linked in the description of this because it blew my mind. 
I did not expect to find something this in-depth, and so I have to credit them, and I have to, like, use their thing here. I hope they don't mind me reading it out here, because it is amazing! I'm so impressed! I hope you are too. Anyway, the gods or the gods and goddesses we're going to go through on this list are Khonshu, Sobek, Amat, Bast, Tauret, Ra, Set and Osiris, Isis, and Horus and Hathor. So... Let's get to this. I'm so excited. Okay, Khonshu. Mythology's Khonshu is known as a god of the moon and time. He is the personification of the crescent moon. In some stories, Khonshu was the son of Amun, eventually Amun-Ra or Ra, and the king of the gods, and Mut, the mother goddess of Thebes. He was also a companion of Thoth, another god associated with the moon. I don't know if it's Thoth or Thoth. I'm sorry. Conchu's connection to the moon, specifically the crescent moon, makes him an obvious choice for Moon Knight's patron god. Additionally, like Moon Knight's Mark Spector, Egyptian mythology's Conchu contains multitudes. Sometimes mythology considers Conchu a violent and dangerous god, even a cannibal who feasts on the hearts. Other texts, meanwhile, see him as a gentler, compassionate being. He also takes on different forms in accordance to the moon's phase. During a new moon, which, by the way, is coming up, I think, on the 1st or 2nd of April, uh, Khonshu is known as the Mighty Bull. Meanwhile, he is known as the Neuter Bull during a full moon, perhaps in relation to his embodiment of the Crescent Moon. Furthermore, Khonshu controls evil spirits that cause humans pain and even death. But conversely, he helps plants to grow and fruit to ripen and animals to conceive and is the god of love, which was a line from one of the texts. Khonshu's personality dualities lend themselves well to Moon Knight's tale. Mark Spector himself is well known for having several contrasting identities. Like Khonshu, some of Moon Knight's personalities focus on heroism, while violence drives other versions of him. Let's discuss Sobek, which is also sometimes Sebek is the ancient Egyptian god of crocodiles. In mythology, Sobek is depicted with the head of a crocodile and the body of a man. He often wears, quote, a plumed headdress with horned sun disc or the Atef crown, associating him with Amun-Ra, and carries the wasp scepter, representing power, and the Ankh, representing the breath of life, end quote. The Nile River, of course, played a central part in Egyptian life, and crocodiles were its chief inhabitants. Thus, it makes sense that the crocodile god played an important role in ancient Egyptian mythology. Sobek was the protector of the pharaohs and a patron god of the military. Egyptian creation, creation myths occasionally depicted Sobek as the world's creator. In some tales, his sweat became the Nile, the river of Gib the giver of life in, the ancient, in ancient Egypt, while in others, his eggs gave birth to the universe. Though integral, Sobek was known as a darker god who needed to be appeased. Interestingly, Sobek was sometimes named Conchu's father. It's one thing to understand with these mythologies is there are often many different versions of things, so that's why it says sometimes named Conchu's father. Now we have Amit or Amut. The Devourer, they are the Devourer who was a crocodile-headed beast who ate the hearts of the unworthy on their way to the afterlife. Amit also appears in the Marvel Moon Knight's comics. Uh, in Egyptian mythology, Amit played a key role in the weighing of the heart ceremony. The ancient Egyptians believed that at death, a person's heart would get weighed on scales against the feather of Mat, the goddess of truth and justice. The ceremony included several key gods and one key symbol. Those gods were either Anubis or Osiris, labeled as the heart's judge, Thoth, the god of reason and writing, who recorded the results of the weighing, and the hungry Amit, ready to leap into action should a heart prove false. 
The key symbol of the weighing of the heart ritual, of course, is that of the scales. And we do see scales tattooed on Arthur Harrow's skin, which is very interesting. That is a good point. I don't think I even noticed that. Amit was ultimately the personification of divine retribution. Oh, one thing I also want to say about the connection to Moon Knight about Amit. Um, there is a crocodile on the cell phone when Lyra, or whatever her name is, calls. Also that. Uh, Amit was ultimately the personification of divine retribution, and if your heart came out too heavy, she would consume it, preventing you from entering the afterlife. Of course, that doesn't make Amit evil, necessarily. Each individual's choices make their hearts ready for consumption. Although she was seen as a demon, she was also a reminder of the order necessary for peace, and her symbol was used to ward off evil. Still, Amit is undoubtedly a dark god, so she seems like a, god, a good companion for a Moon Knight's villain. After all, MCU villains, similarly to Egyptian mythology's Amit, often see themselves as nothing more than forces of order. Thanos wins. Next up is Bast, who also we're going to discuss the connection to Black Panther. Although sometimes known as the Cat Goddess, Bast, or Bastet, was first linked to the lion or desert sand cat. However, as humans domesticated cats, Bast became exclusively associated with them, though she never lost her initial ferocity. As a daughter of Ra, her sister is, um, segment. As a daughter of Ra, Bast was the heart of a predator, but her fierceness is well used. Cats were seen as protectors in ancient Egypt, helping crops by killing vermin, and thus Bast became the goddess who protected the home. Bast was also the goddess of pleasure and bringer of good health. She held the cats as sacred creatures, and mythology often depicts Bast as a woman with the head of a cat. Bat has officially appeared in the MCU as one of the few Egyptian gods we've already met. In the introduction of To Black Panther, Bast manifests as a giant panther and bestows the heart-shaped herb and its power onto a warrior shaman. This warrior becomes the first Black Panther and protector of Wakanda. Though Bast did not appear as a true character, Moon Knight could offer the perfect opportunity for the Egyptian goddess to return. In Marvel's comics, Bast appears as a panther goddess and protector of Wakanda alongside Thoth, the god of reason, Ta, the, the god of craftsmen, and Sekhmet, woo, the lion god. Additionally, Bast possesses scales of great magical power, and scales, we already saw, could become a Moon Knight motif. Motif? Motif. As part of the Aeneid and Khonshu, with Khonshu, it feels very possible that Bast could, that Bast would know the god in the MCU's world, and given Black Panther Wakanda Forever's 2022 release date, oh shit, that's this year? I forgot about that. Uh, we could see Moon Knight lay foundations for the upcoming movie. I totally forgot that was this year. It's also worth noting that in later periods, because of Greek intervention, Bast became the goddess of the moon as well as other changers to make her a closer match to their goddess Diana. I added that last part in. Myself. Once again, this is taken from a fantastic article from Nerdist linked at the bottom. Next up is Taoret. Of all the gods in ancient Egypt, the goddess Taoret has seemingly been confirmed for Moon Knight. According to Variety, Moon Knight's Taoret will be played by Antonia Salib, although the actress did not herself confirm. In mythology, Taoret played the role of a protective goddess. She watched over pregnancy, mother, and child. In her earliest myths, Taoret was seen as a volatile force, often portrayed in, for in the form of a hippopotamus, lion, or crocodile. Animals that Egyptians both feared but also revered. 
but over time, aggression gave way to protection. Antara came to be known as a nurturing force, closer to a mother or nurse protective of their young. We can't say for certain whether Moon Knight will feature any pregnancy, but anything results but anything's possible in the MCU. Interestingly, it appears Marvel does not have any comic analog for Tauret, so this Egyptian goddess will be entirely new to the Marvel Universe. We can't wait to learn more about her story. Next is Ra, the sun god. In some way, the mythological gods with direct connections to Moon Knight or the MCU all tie back to one major god, also known as Amun-Ra, when combined with another powerful deity. Ra, the sun god, rules as the king of gods in Egyptian mythology. He is seen as the father of creation and the, quote, patron of the sun, heaven, kingship, power, and light, unquote. Additionally, he could, not he could turn into the very sun itself. Given that the ancient Egyptians based their society on agriculture, it follows that the sun god plays a significant role. As mentioned, Ra fathered Khonshu in some versions of mythology. Meanwhile, Sobek often wears a sun disc associating him with Ra. Finally, mythology also names Bass Ra's daughter, also Sekhmet. All signs that Ra may come into play in Moon Knight. In addition to this, Marvel's version of Ra, also called Atum, plays father to Moon Knight's Khonshu. In the comics, this cosmic father and son do not get along. Like Khonshu, who selects a champion to become his Moon Knight on Earth, Ra, too, chooses a defender. Ra's champion becomes known as the Sun King and represents Ra's interests on Earth since the god, quote, cannot enter the earthly plane. The Sun King and Moon Knight have clashed many times throughout the comics, as they have, though the Sun King has never triumphed over Moon Knight. And this Sun versus Moon collision seems very likely, seems like a made-for-TV rivalry if there ever was one. I just want to point out, after the Greeks came into uh, Egypt and kind of warped Bast to be from a sun goddess to a moon goddess, um, she also kind of split, depends on their translation and all that, but she and Sekhmet are either one being or sisters, both daughters of Ra. Um, and further on in history, after the Greeks go in there and do their stuff and have their influence, it becomes seen that uh, Bast is the moon goddess and segment or the moon cat goddess and segment is the sun lion goddess just kind of a parallel to that i thought was kind of cool thought i'd mention <laughs> next is set and osiris when it comes to dramatic rivalries in Egyptian mythology, Moon Knight could adapt one of the most well-known conflicts between gods. Osiris and Set's story feels perfect for the MCU, especially given Marvel's rich history of sibling skirmishes. At one point in time, Osiris ruled Egypt, helping its civilization flourish by giving laws to humans and, and teaching society agriculture. But his brother Set or Seth grew jealous of him, so Set tricked Osiris by holding a great feast in his honor and tempting him with a beautiful chest, a prize for whichever guest could fit inside of it. When Osiris lay in the chest, Set had it nailed shut and threw it into the River Nile. However, realizing this was not enough, Set also dismembered his brother and flung the pieces of him all over Egypt. Maybe something with the MCU could consider engaging with now that Disney Plus has parental controls. That's funny. Lucky for Osiris, his wife Isis and Set's... This was... Yeah, this is a funny one. Uh, uh, she... <laughs> his wife Isis and Seth's wife Nephthesis collected the body parts and resurrected him. She had, had they don't mention it here, but she had sex with it. Just the one part that she needed. Um, Osiris then it's in mythology. Osiris then had a son Hor Horus and became the Lord 
of the dead and the afterlife. With the MCU exploring many realms in its multiverse, the afterlife could potentially appear. Marvel has explored versions of it before. Set, meanwhile, has domain over the desert, thunderstorms, and earthquakes. Though he appears as a frightening and strange god, he does not necessarily qualify as evil. Ra adopted Set, and Set served as his protector, quote, from the chaos serpent Apophis during the sun's nightly travel through the underworld, unquote. In Marvel Comics, Set and Osiris are part of the Heliopolitan, Politan? Heliopolitan gods. I had to sound that one out. And the conflict between them exists. If the two join the MCU, they will follow in the footsteps of sibling pairs like Thor and Loki and Gamora and Nebula. We've got two more. All of a sudden. Isis, mother of magic. The MCU has embraced magic in its phase four. Wanda Maximoff finally became the Scarlet Witch in earnest. When we last saw her, Wanda was studying the Darkhold, a book of spells known as, uh, also known as the Book of the Damned. And with Doctor Strange in the multiverse just around the corner, multiverse of madness just around the corner, we know sorcerers will come back into play. So who better for Moon Knight to introduce than the Egyptian goddess Isis? In some version of the mythology, Isis is known as the Egyptian goddess of healing and the mother of magic. Even her priestesses supposedly had magical powers that stemmed from the goddess. Through Though her main story links Set and Osiris' struggle, Isis has power in her own right. The Egyptian... The ancient Egyptians called Isis Aset. Her original Egyptian name means Queen of the Throne. As such, Isis was at times known as Queen of the Universe and the, quote, embodiment of cosmic order, unquote. Sounds like an MCU character if you ask us. <laughs> That's funny. The goddess Isis also exists in Marvel Comics. In her main story, uh, her brother Seth traps Isis, her husband Osiris, and their son Horus in a pyramid beneath Egypt. To escape, they use their magic to contact familiar figures, Odin and his son Thor. Thor becomes embroiled with the conflict, conflict with Seth. With Thor, Love and Thunder releasing on July 8th. Also, we also know Zeus is going to be in that. Uh, perhaps the Moon Knight could set up this mythology-driven tale. We also know- oh yeah, they mentioned that here. Cool. After all, the movie will feature, as I was about to say, Gore the God Butcher, known for killing gods. Well, they just say Gore the Butcher. He's Gore the God Butcher. Uh, Horus and Hathor. Another important god of Egyptian mythology is Horus, the falcon-headed god of kingship. As noted, Horus is the son of the powerful duo Osiris and Isis, but in his family's struggle with the god Seth, Horus is seen as Seth's key opponent. After Isis resurrected Osiris from Seth's treachery, she gave him she gave birth to Horus but hid him away. Eventually, Horus emerged to challenge Seth and reclaim the throne of his father. Horus won the struggle to become king and god of kings. I think that was in that terrible movie, um, Gods of Egypt. Terrible movie. But not before Seth damaged his eye, fracturing it into six pieces, and the god of reason Thoth, the god of reason Thoth healed the wound, creating the eye of Horus, or the famous symbol known as the Wajat. Wajat. The six pieces of the symbol represent the six senses, including the sense of thought. If the MCU engages with any of the story, it could be it would be wise to include Horus. Additionally, Horus's wife Hathor could play a role in this family dynamic. In Egyptian mythology, Hathor plays the role Hathor plays is the goddess of women and love. Hathor plays patron to cosmetics, beauty, dancing, music, and pleasure. And as a daughter of Ra, she is also very powerful, a lovely goddess to have around for sure. 
A few other favorites that could be appearing include Anubis, the jackal-headed god of the dead, Sekhmet, okay, there they, she mentions, he mentions it, uh, so the, the Leonine goddess of war and healing, and Thoth, the god of reason, who has made several appearances in our write-up already. That moves us on to the Myth of Stanley conversation, which took place 3 p.m. on Monday on Zoom. It was free. I'm sorry if you missed it. I've got all the info here, though. It was co-sponsored by the Jewish Community Library and the Cartoon Art Museum. Both websites are linked below. Um, San Francisco State University was the school putting this on. It was my alma mater. They have the only Jewish studies uh, program in the Bay Area. You do not have to be Jewish in any way to be involved in any of their programs. The Zoom presentation has been recorded to watch later if you contact the host professors from San Francisco State University who were Professor Rachel Gross. I think it was gross, Associate Professor and Goldman Chair of American Jewish Studies and Professor Nick Susanis, Associate Professor, started and runs the comics program at San Francisco State University, which is now only one of five or six in the nation. And it started about a semester after I graduated. <sighs> I wish my school had a comics program. Well, I do now. <laughs> Good for them. Uh, Abraham Reisman is a journalist and essayist and former longtime staffer at, at New York Magazine and Vulture, Washington Post, Vice, Boston Globe, and more. He's currently working on a book called Ringmaster. Couldn't tell you anything about it, but you can check out his website linked below. This conversation is regarding his book, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. Reisman has been a comic reader since grade school, starting with Marvel Cape Comics, but he was aware of Stanley before that because of his TV appearances at the time. Stan was a longtime head editor at Marvel Comics, if you were not aware, for about 30 years, the last 10 of which was a pretty big deal in pop culture. By the 90s, Marvel was established and had all kinds of animated shows going at the time. The network chose Stan to present the shows, having developed his reputation as being the progenitor of Marvel Pantheon. And so, live-action Stan started doing intros to the cartoons, almost like a godlike figure hovering over them all, omniscient to them. That was how Reisman first knew Stan Lee. As a journalist in 2013, Reisman started writing about the comics industry, including a profile on Stan in 2016. Editors asked him to expand the profile into a book after Stan's death, and here we are. Stan was an enormously significant figure, but not necessarily for the reasons that we traditionally think of him as a significant figure. Stan was a child of Jewish-Romanian immigrants, and at the young age became editor-in-chief of his cousin-in-law's comics publishing arm. He was 19. Comics at the time were seen mostly as trash stories for kids, fairly low-end on the culture scale. In the 1960s, whilst collaborating with the likes of Kirby and Ditko, mainly Kirby, Stan and co. introduced all these characters into the comics that have since become absolute legend all over the course of a few years in the 1960s. Not that they knew they were doing it, what they were doing at the time, Reisman notes, especially as far as intellectual property goes. No one paid that whole idea any attention, it wasn't considered important to track who came up with what specifically. Due to this, no one person can be credited with the founding of the Marvel Universe. Reisman's book talks about... <clears throat> 
Excuse me. Reisman's book talks about Stan's origins and family. Stanley Martin Lieber was his birth name, which he tried to bury with a lot of his old family history. After he left Marvel in 1998, both companies he built failed, one after another. It was rough. Towards the end, he remained a victim of elder abuse in a family who wanted his money and power. Reisman notes that Stan doesn't have a happy ending, but the paperback version of his book adds a little more to the story at the end, notably. In Stan's own memoir, where he does not mention he is Jewish, he does mention he and his wife Joan had trouble adopting because they were a mixed couple. He says, Joan was Episcopalian, my parents were Jewish. The issue was that others considered him Jewish, which he did not personally identify as. Reisman's theory on this is Stan wanted to get away from his past and start his own story for himself. And his father, Jack, Yunko Lieber, is the traditional way his name was said, Yunko, was fiercely Jewish, but very traditional, but not orthodox. Celia, Stan's mother, would light candles for Sab- Sabbath and say, and say Kaddish as well. Jack Lieber was a passionate Zionist, uh, Reisman says, and Jack's father, Simon, went to Palestine, so Stan might have some family in Israel. As, a res- as an adult, Stan's father would write to him and his brother in letters, saying they're not doing enough with their Jewishness. Stan's daughter was baptized in the 1950s, obviously, which is a Catholic ceremony Christian thing, uh, which was traumatic because of the Lieber family's history. Anti-Semitism was rampant and open, and Stan was essentially trying to shunt off that part of his lineage. Jack Lieber, Reisman says, made Stan want to get away from his Jewishness and anything else that had to do with this, his dour, difficult father with whom he had a poor relationship with. But Stan was bar mitzvahed and he grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, etc. Culturally, more than ethnically, Stan was Jewish. Reisman also posts that Stan's Jewishness impacted his life more than his work, and that civilian and familiar trauma based in their Jewishness and the Jewish community did have, did have an effect on his whole life. Uh, he also noted, Raceman also noted that his father, Jack, survived pogrom, pogrom, which I'm sorry, I don't really know what that is, but I understood it to be some kind of riot. Many American Jews changed their names in the mid-century to avoid anti-Semitism. However, that's not why Stan changed his. Kirby was a Jewish creator with another name as well, Jacob Kurtzberg, and they both swore, swore their new names were not chosen due to anti-Semitism fears. Reisman argues that they weren't consciously doing so, but it could be a larger statement on how ingrained anti-Semitism is. He also says he thinks it mainly had to do with wanting to sound like a serious author, and Stan Stan Lee is the kind of name a serious author would have. Kirby tried out a bunch of different uh, pseudonyms, but Kirby was the one that stuck. The curious thing is, what Stan told us, his reasons for things don't necessarily match history and his actions. So there's no real facts here, just a lot of ambiguity, he says. Comics had a bad rep for a long time, so sounding like a serious writer was important to a lot of comics creators. Uh, Reisman told a story about Will Eisner, who is a legend. Uh, they're literally the Eisner ceremony, which I mentioned earlier, is the uh, the Oscars of the comics industry are named after Will Eisner. Um, he used to tell people that he worked in comics, and they would tell him how dreadful. <laughs> that was the kind of reaction he would get. Absolute legend. Nobody liked him at the time. Reisman argues he doesn't think Stan ever... Nobody liked him. Nobody liked what he did. (laughs) Reisman argued he doesn't think Stan ever got to the point that he wanted as a creator. He never wrote his great American novel he always wanted to write. He kept saying, this one is it, the one I've always wanted to do. 
but he doesn't think Stan ever actually felt that way of any of them. Stan was still editing a comic in his 90s, not really wanting to not really wanting to do it, but never wanting to say no and disappoint people. He really did want to do movies and TV, but never really got to that point. Stan did become the forefront of the Marvel movies arm in California, however, for a time in the 90s, but he left in 1998, just before Blade came out and picked up audience interest in superhero movies for the first time. He didn't have ownership of any of the characters he worked with and was originally supposed to get 10% of everything he helped create. However, he never did get that and ended up settling for a mere 10 million in 2005. Mere because the MCU debuts in 2008 and he could have been sitting on a mountain of gold for him and his leeching family. In the end, comics were a big business, but Stan Lee the man was not. He simply could not generate very much capital with his own projects. His wife and daughter were spending all his money, and he continually needed liquid cash to keep up with it, hence his convention appearances well into his 90s. There are alarming videos from the last year and years of his life where people, family, etc. are basically dragging him, holding him up to be there. He did not rise in the Marvel tide, which is an important statement on how bad the industry is for its creators. It is something that I just would like to let sit there for a second because we talk about it, how bad the industry is a lot. And I think Stanley's story is a great example. Now, how about the controversy in his life involving who created the Marvel Universe? Lee Kirby? Reisman attributes a lot of the confusion, as it were, to the Marvel method. The Marvel method is a specific way of making comics... Um, that Marvel made back in the day. Nowadays, comics are done with a script. It is written and given to an artist, and there's back and forth as need be. But back in the day, they used what is now known as the Marvel method. It was idiosyncratic, Reisman says, but it had no name at the time. We just call it this now. With the Marvel method, the artist was really the primary writer. Artist and writer would have this conversation deciding what they wanted the story to be about, and then the writer would take it home and put it on the pages. Then they would give it to the... So the artist would take it home and put it on the pages. See, I can't even... I can't even write it out right because it's so backwards. The artist would take it home and put it on the pages and then they would give it to the writer who would take them and come up with the dialogue and narration to fit the visuals. Very odd, very backwards, explains a lot of the extreme over explanations that happened in that era of comics. The trouble of course is who is the real writer? It's both by any definition. The key problem is that the conversation they have um where they decide what the story is going to be. Um, with the writer, they're involved in the first step. Nothing was ever recorded, tracked, written down as to who said what. That whole thing of no one ever thinking intellectual properties were a thing to consider at all. Even in interviews, Stan would come out and say that it would often be so loose as to just be him telling Jack Kirby that Doom would should show up in this issue, go for it. And then he writes plot over the art that Kirby comes back with. That was how little the technical writer had to do in the choosing of the events and the characters at times. Jack Kirby was a writer and an artist. Stan was a writer only. It is kind of factual that Jack was at minimum 50% creator of all of these Marvel concepts between the two of them. Plus, he had a ton of credits outside of merely Stan's work. 
So the question then is, did sand not create them at all? Well, you can't really say that in any real legal definitive way, and there have been plenty of legal cases at that. It even almost went to the Supreme Court in 2014, and then the Kirby estate settled. People have been trying to prove who created the Marvel Universe for years, and it's just not possible. Professor Susanis's thoughts on the Marvel method is that things were visually written. Formatting is literally everything in comics, and that's why they decided to do that at the time. Formatting is part of the storytelling. Now we just know that you gotta just work at it. You just gotta learn. <laughs> he also thinks many of Stan's choices are indefensible, which I'm kind of curious about his reason, his specifics of that. Um, but there is a strong bias for the written word in any visual script storytelling project. Maybe the culture of the written word being dominant was bigger part of Lee being credited than just Lee being who he was. Writers in general have a tendency also to oversell how much they've done, and you end up with the sin of omission. Everyone just took Stan at his word that he was the progenitor, Reisman adds. He was so well-spoken and charismatic, he wouldn't, take, he wouldn't take full credit, he would just not really fully emphasize how much the artist did. It's the sin of omission. And, it, and he did so little to rectify this that it leads to a period in the 1980s where Stan and Jack were at war via proxy, unfortunately snapping the weight, snapping their relationship under that weight. And on the note of Stan being well-spoken and charismatic, was the Marvel Universe actually good or is Stan just a good salesman? Reisman says that when he was doing his research, he found Boomer, Boomer men's favorite parts of the Marvel Universe of comics while growing up wasn't writing or art. It was the letters pages. Stan wrote them like a message board, like social media. That was the community they had at the time, and you could see if Stan would zing your letters like a badge of honor. Reprints didn't weren't included in letters pages, and other comics would just print letters, not really responding. Then there is the no prize. If you notice a continuity error and you write about it into the letters page, plus give them an excuse for how to make that wrong bit work in the story, and if Stan liked it, you get sent a no prize, an envelope with nothing in it. One of Marvel's most famous and celebrated inside jokes. They also did Stan's soapbox, which was Stan's column of just sounding off about whatever he wanted to. For decades after he stopped writing, Stan had his soapbox. And Stan got the idea to do this kind of fan interaction in the back of the book from some um, weird kid stories from his childhood. I wasn't paying much attention to that part, sorry. Uh, but I do want to add, my favorite letters page story is when Neil Gaiman wrote the three-issue Angela series at Image Comics out alongside Greg Capullo's art. Neil took it upon himself to respond, or I think they are, they're asked him to respond to the letters pages himself. Many of them weren't responded to, just posted as the letter, but Gaiman's responses that he did give tended to be very sarcastic. Like, he clearly wanted nothing to do with this part of the job. But the gem that we got from this is that the first issue, for some reason, included a back section showing McFarlane's toy factories in a developing Asian country. It was, especially from a modern perspective, a shot of a sweatshop and in super poor taste to be posting in there as like he was showing it off. In the subsequent second issue, a fan actually addressed this oddity in his letter to which Gaiman responded with something along the lines of, you make a good point, Todd, care to explain your sweatshop? <laughs> 
to further add to this glory. Gaiman later took McFarlane to court over ownership of the character Angela, which he rightfully won, and then immediately sold her rights to Marvel, where she has actually had a pretty cool arc of late. Again, Professor Susannis points out in the talk that Stanley also went to DeWitt Clinton High School, where also did uh, Eisner, Bob Kane, and many others at the same time. Somebody asked the question, how did the Holocaust affect Stan or his family? Royceman responds, Stan served in the Signal Corps, the playwrights division for war propaganda type things in the U.S. He wrote an intro to a book about comics about the Holocaust, but not because he has any particular expertise or personal relationship to the events. Another question was, what character is most like Stan? He said people tend to point to Spider-Man when looking for a semi-autobiographical character. Reisman thinks the Silver Surfer is what he saw him, what Stan saw himself as, even though he did not fully concede, though he did, sorry, did fully concede that Jack fully created the Silver Surfer himself. Um, a Mobius Stanley Silver Surfer uh, story is one of the most celebrated Silver Surfer stories out there uh, with art by Mobius, which if you can find a modern comparison, might look at Bilquis Evely. They had some excellent exchanges in the chat of Magneto and Ben Grimm being Jewish and how Magneto was not Jewish until later creators added it. Uh, and fans will pick up Jewish tones, whether the creators kind of mean to or not. Conversely, Reisman says that no one is out here doing anything like a uh, Jewish Black Panther, basically. They tend to give you either a Zionist or nothing with Jewish characters in comics. To sum everything up, Stan continues to resonate due to his excellent personal branding. His character resonates now more than ever. The big story we tend to see is how he starts from humble origins, makes it big, and dies famous. But it's not as simple as that and not nearly as happy. Stan donated his archives, almost 200 boxes of images and video and writing and everything to tell his story, not the myth. Stan was not a single man that built an empire, earning himself the American dream. He was a man who came up with some fairly genius things at a couple of times. His popular legacy is being a self-starter and capturing the American dream, but Reisman thinks it's more, it's more credit to Stan to give the whole story, including the failures, the teamwork, the trial and error, and that constant striving to reach the American dream. Moving on to comic book picks, as I said at the beginning of this, my pick of the week is Bolero number three, but we are also going to briefly touch on Ray number three, Iron Man number 18, Harley Quinn 13, Monsters 38, The Human Target number six, and Demon Days Blood Feud number one. Bolero number three being my pick of the week, unsurprisingly, it is stunning once again. At this point in the story, it has now been some time, uh, and Devon has found herself in, a, in the universe that fits her. I think it might be the original one. Um, the man that she's been living with for some time is a children's music teacher whose hearing is deteriorating. The two of them go to a fancy LA pool with a friend, and Nat, the ex-girlfriend, shows up. Devon's partner knows her history with Nat, and that it's time for them to try and just be friends, and for a while it works. Then one night, Devon and their uh, mutual friend go drinking together, and she spots that this friend is in the same deep pit of sadness she had in herself at the beginning of this whole journey in issue one. So she tells her friend everything about the universe hopping. They're out drinking together, and 
even Devin with her apparent issues with alcohol, is back to drinking. When the conversation gets to discussing the many people Devin has slept with throughout the various universes, she admits she's never slept with this particular friend or any version of her. Since she herself had just been saying how she regrets her marriage and in its lack of sex life, the two of them end up poking up. In the morning, her friend is devastated at what they've done, both cheating on their partners and Devin falling off the wagon worse than ever. When she goes home, Devin's partner knows something is up. She admits she's been drinking again, and he's furious. She apparently left him a voicemail the night before that she doesn't remember, and he says she was crying and clearly drunk while apologizing. Still, Devin tells him he's surprisingly chill for learning she just cheated on him with her best friend. And it stumps him. That was not part of the message, but now he knows, so he storms out. And then it is revealed. (laughs) This was a really cool point. For a long time, he had asked Devin about the charm um, and the key that she wore, the charm of Capgrass, the dimensional, is it Grass or Gras? I'm going to say Capgras, the dimensional cat, and the key to the red door for hopping dimensions. She always told him, maybe I'll tell you someday. And her partner walks down the street. He pulls his own charm and key out of his pocket. When he goes home later, Devin isn't there, so he leaves her a voicemail of his own. He says he always asked about that keychain because he'd always hoped she'd tell him, and that would be something that they could bond over their shared experience. Big shit moment. <laughs> it then turns out that Devin went to Natasha's place, unsure if they hooked up or not, but it kind of seemed that way. And when Nat wakes up, she finds... Devin, she finds a uh, Capra charm and key and stumbles into that nether dimension where Capra says to her, Natasha, it's been a long time. So she does this too. They're all, everybody, all of, all of these friends are all dimension hoppers and none of them know about it. Ugh. <laughs> uh, one thing I really feel is important to understand is Devin's characterization. Uh, she is Korean American and her mom is out of the picture. Her dad is around. Clearly, she had some messed up stuff involving her mom in her childhood because she has a restlessness in her romantic relationships that likely stems from childhood abandonment or not having a solid framework for healthy relationships based on her own upbringing. It's part of why her romance with Natasha never worked out and why, and is why she self-sabotages this new, solid relationship with a teacher man. She starts feeling safe and comfortable, and that's when she starts to get restless. It seems like she starts to feel like she's not good enough for what's going on well with her. So so she unconsciously tries to prove that she's a piece of shit by acting like one until the relationship dissolves. It's very common based on some kind of generational trauma. Again, it feels a lot like sex criminals as well, which, if you like this, you will love. In any case, I am very curious how this characterization will continue to affect the plot and her own development as the story goes on the final two issues there's only five and i am sad rain number three was um a good a good bit of development honeysuckle the kid and the vigilante are headed to denver together the rain continues so they have to wait it out and when they get going again they see this dude out there uh, like a cop or something in charge of prisoners who are loading the bodies on, on the freeway uh into a like cart one of the prisoners uh, shanks the cop in the neck and uses the guy's gun to uh, strong arm honeysuckle into taking the cart thing, tractor, to Canada, which is the opposite direction they're trying to go. So, issues abound. 
Iron Man number 18, remember the last issue, Tony killed everybody around him, all his, all his friends. <laughs> this issue, he's sitting here talking to Patsy. He brings, Patsy brings Tony, remember she has, um, not psychic, but, um, she has mind powers, um, Moon Dragon, I was gonna say Moon Girl, Moon Dragon, um, trained her in psychic powers of sorts. Um, so she brings Tony mentally into a, um, a generational location from his family to speak with him. Uh, the guest artist in this issue is really interesting. I really, I, I, I liked it, but it, I was just, I was very like enthralled by the art. I kept looking at it and just looking at it. <laughs> Patsy and Tony talk about the generational trauma brought on by their various parents, always trying to live up to the idealized version of themselves the parents wanted. She tells Tony to bring back the friends that he just killed, but let them remember what he did, so he won't forget either. He rids himself of the power cosmic, and Patsy tells him that she needs a break from him for a while. And then Tony goes on morphine withdrawal and collapses just as Korvac arrives to gloat. Question, how did Tony fix his neck? Just asking. Harley Quinn number 13. Verdict frames Harley for killing a bunch of baddies, I guess. Harley steals a food truck to help a food bank. Um, and then when she takes Kevin to her apartment, he sees that it is a depression pit. And finally they address Ivy. Harley says that she missed her. And then the GCPD shows up and arrests her. <laughs> they take her to Blackgate without bail. Word gets around that she's there, that she's going to be there before she even arrives. Clearly, it's going to be a problem. Monstrous number 38, we finally get to see the death court, which blew my mind completely. Uh, Corvin and the little fox are taken on a train to the death court where the dawn and dusk have gathered to meet. It is all of the ancients in one place for the first time in a thousand years. You can bet there's going to be a bomb. There's no way there's not. The human target number six, Christopher Chance, is starting to feel the poison everywhere in his body. There is a really, really sweet bit about how he once asked his dad uh, what religion they were, and he said it wasn't really his place to decide for him, uh, but, if he, but if he does make a decision, they'll go out and they'll worship whatever he wants, or they can sit here and watch baseball. So they sit and they watch baseball together. This is Tom King saying it's their church. It's very Tom King. It's very sweet. Uh, he and Frost have makeup sex, and right after Guy Gardner busts in to beat his ass, uh, and Ice starts defending him, but she's losing. Chance knows that she won't uh, let loose on Guy unless Guy hurts him, so he shoots at Guy, making Guy physically attack him. And then Ice freezes Guy solid where he stands. Chance punches him and shatters the whole body. Remember, this is out of canon, so just reminding everyone. Guy Gardner just got murdered. Uh, and then at the very end, uh, Fire finds him. He's been kind of asking around about her, so she finds him first. Finally, Demon Dade's Blood Feud number one is the final issue, question mark. Uh, Mariko faces off with Halbo the Hulk. Um, Halbo defeats her, and then she's able to turn him back into a baby. Ogan stabs her in their fight and then takes her to a village that can help heal her before taking off on her own. Um, this episode, this episode, this issue had showstopper paneling, some of the absolute best work I've seen Peach Moko do, and the last couple of pages are, without a doubt, the best art I have ever seen Peach Moko do. It is impressive as all out. Um, 
And the good news is apparently the series is expanding this summer, whatever that may mean. I am looking forward to more Peach from Moko's Marvel Universe. The last thing we're discussing on this episode is the weekly comic polis. For most things, they are coming out Wednesday the 30th. DC Comics are already out as of Tuesday the 29th. Uh, For the number ones, we'll read the solicits, and for the rest, we'll just kind of go through them because I don't want to repeat myself 50 billion times. Seasons of the Bruja, number one. Um, There has been this, this is not the solicitation, but I just want to note, there has been a kind of like what you might call like a metaphysical interest awakening happening Um, when you'll see it. And it's it's, it's like, I I don't want to say trendy thing, but it's become a very popular thing for people to want to see these sorts of uh, metaphysical topics in various places in their life. And I'm finally starting to see it in comics too. Uh, The trend is leaking into comics and it's kind of cool. So that's, I think, what this is partially from. Seasons of the Bruja, number one. Althalia Cabrera might seem like any other witchy Portland hipster, whiling away her days behind the counter of a freaky occult museum, but there's more to her than, but there's more to whole whole deal than a trendy pursuit of the craft. Althalia is a Bruja by Blood, the youngest in a long line of powerful magic users from a long ago culture indigenous to Mexico. In her 20 years, Althalia, Althalia, yeah, that's it, has studied her with her loving abuela by her side, supporting and mentoring her to mentoring her use of the family magic and protecting her from the darkest parts of their practices history. But just as Althalia's inner light and power begin to shine, the darkness of the past finds its way into her world and strikes a tragic blow, testing Althalia in ways she might not be prepared to sur- be prepared enough to survive. It is by Aaron Duran and Sarah Solar, coming from Oni Press. It's a mini-series. Sensational Wonder Woman special number one is obviously a special coming for Women International Women's Day. It says, Wonder Woman stars in three sensational stories that will push her to her limits. Will the Amazon princess come out on top after battling the likes of Cersei, Blue Snowman, and Thren of Doom? Join us in this celebration of all things Wonder Woman for International Women's Day. Written by Paula Sevenberg, Stephanie Phillips, and Scott Collins, with art by Paula Pelletier, oh, Paul Pelletier, Aletha Martinez, and Scott Collins. We have covers by Kat Staggs, Emma Lupacino, Maria Laura Sanapo, and Jung Young-Goon. Jung Young-Goon. I just had to take a break to cough my lungs up for a second. Cities of Magic number one. The solicitation says once upon a time in old york i believe this is a one shot as well this is the age of magic the city the age of city states and magic gangs and the post post apocalypse our hero a cowboy named love strolls into old york city looking for something no one's ever seen before he's picked a bad time the forces of hyper priestess ismar rothschild the queen of the chicago conglomerate have attacked old york the only person who stands in Isamar's way is Gregor Steiner, leader of the Red Double X's, the magic gang that protects the city from foreign inv- invaders. Lev didn't come looking for a fight, but that doesn't mean he isn't prepared for one. Caught in the midst of a decade-old war between two powerful gangs, Lev has to figure out where his loyalties lie and if he has any to speak of. And if he... And... And he has to do it all quick-like. Okay. It is by Jacob Free, Will Tempest, and Brian Simpson, coming from Scout Comics. 
Batman Beyond the White Knight number one is Stronger and Murphy's fourth iteration, well, fourth series coming from the Murphyverse, starting with Batman the White Knight, Batman the Curse of the White Knight, Batman the White Knight, Harley Quinn, and now Batman the White Knight, no, sorry, Batman Beyond the White Knight. Uh, it's from DC Black Label. It says, a lot can change in 10 years, especially in Gotham. So it's been 10 years since um, The White Knight. Batman, aka Bruce Wayne, may be behind bars, but the real criminals are still out there. Gotham City Motors CEO Derek Powers has seized control of the Wayne family's assets and is using them to transform the GTO and the city they've sworn to protect. Crime is down, but at what cost? A new Batman has emerged in the city, and only Bruce is fully aware of the dangers to come. It's time to destroy the mantle for good, but he'll need one, one of his forgotten sons' help to do so. Enter Jason Todd, the first Robin. And that is a change. Um, the Murphyverse changes key things like that. Um, I mean, the whole point of the White Knight universe was that... Um, Joker was a person who was saving the city um, p w through politics. Like it's a, it's a it's a twist on the standard canon. Um, so that's why Jason Todd is the first Robin in this world. Jason Todd is also going to have his own Robin, who, based on previews, might might be Cassandra Kane. We'll have to wait and see, though. It's out today, so go check it out. Immortal X-Men number one. It says, In the Quiet Council, no one can hear you scream. The Quiet Council rules Krakoan age, for the better or worse. Now, shaken by Inferno and ex-lives of Wolverine, ex-deaths of Wolverine, which I did not read, they strive to hold it together, no matter how much they want to tear each other apart. Writer Kieran Gillen returns to the world of X with artist Lucas Wernick to bring us all into the room where it happens. It's being the most powerful people on Earth deciding the fate of the whole planet. Prepare for secret, sinister secrets to be revealed and learn some secrets are more sinister than others. It is by Kieran Gillen and Lucas Wernick with regular covers by Mark Brooks. An ongoing series and variants of number one are by Lionel Francis Yu. He has a promotional cover. Uh, which ties with Marauders number one. Uh, Lucas Wernick does a Magneto cover. David Nakayama has Storm. Phil Noto has another Magneto. Todd Nock has Emma. Uh, Jeff Johnson has a Carnage Forever variant. Tom Muller has a design variant for somebody. I'm not sure who it is, actually. Uh, Oscar Vega has a Sinister cover. Emma Lupacino has the Woman's History cover of Emma Frost as Queen Elizabeth. And Peter Moko has a Emma Frost incentive cover. Step by Bloody Step number two. Uh, the solicitation's one line, so I'll just read it. It says, Spring turns to summer, the child grows rebellious, the savage walk goes on. But all roads lead to civilization, and all civilization leads to war. This is from Image Comics by Simon Spurrier, Matea Bergara, and Matt Lopez. Panther number two. I don't even know if that's coming. It's been pushed back so many times, it's not even funny. Um, it might be coming out this week. I don't know what the issue is. Batman One Dark Knight number two of three uh, by Jock from DC Black Label. Uh, and that is number three will be out in June. Silk number three of five by Emily Kim and Takeshi Miyazawa. Animal Castle number four of five by Felix Delep and Xavier Dorison from Ablaze Comics. Vampirella Dracula Unholy number four by Christopher Priest is from Dynamite. My Date with Monsters number five of five is the final issue from Paul Tobin and Andy McDonald from Aftershock Comics. 
Dark Ages number six is the final issue from Tom Taylor and Ivan Coelho. Spider-Woman 21 is Carlo Pacheco and Perry Perez introducing, again, the Arachnine, the anti-Arachnine, which from the last issue was friggin' hilarious. Uh, and finally, Captain Marvel 37 is by Kelly Thompson and Julio Sota, with variant covers by Peach Momoko and Rian Gonzalez. Make sure you check out the bottom of the description for some links that I have um, relevant to things we talked about in the ep- this episode, specifically the Reddit page discussing the spoiler behind the scene, uh, the spoiler scenes in Morbius, um, the article that I read a great deal from, the Nerdist article on Egyptian deities and Marvel comics, um, the Comic Art Museum's lo- website, the Jewish Community Library's website, and Abraham Reisman, the author of True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee, his website as well are all linked at the bottom, along with my regular stuff that I always link at the bottom. <laughs> this has been quite a long lengthy episode. Oh, not quite two hours. Darn, I gotta, I gotta just talk for two minutes. Uh, whatever. Thank you for listening to this episode, whatever amount of it that you did. It went much longer than I intended, but that's okay, because we had some really great stuff to talk about. Um, the next episode is, of course, going to be next Monday, uh, the, tw- the, the, the 20-something. No, it's going to be the 4th of uh, April. What month are we in? April. April 4th. Um, April 1st day is the Friday the 1st. I personally hate the traditions of that day. I think it's stupid. Um, but I will have an episode up on the 4th. And then I will have the next Yancey Street special, which will be about Ileana Respian, aka Magic, and a little bit about Madeline Pryor as well, because she will also be heavily involved in that New Mutants, the, the upcoming New Mutants arc. Uh, I'm going to have the Magic cast, as I'm calling it, up either by the 4th, well, by the 11th, I'll say the 4th or the 11th, just say by the 11th, um, because that comes out, I believe, the 27th of April, so there's plenty of time, but it is the April special, so I want to make sure I get it out before the last week of the month, you know, and, and then the uh, the May one is going to be about Patsy Walker before her and Iron Man special the 1st of June, and then the June one will be about uh, the various Marvel characters who are going to be relevant in the MCU you know, soon or not, or already, um, are going to be the June special. Uh, I considered doing a, a Poison Ivy special, but oh my god, her history is so long. She is such an old character, and there's so much convolutedness to DC continuity. So we avoided that. Um, but specials are coming, and I am thankful for you listening to whatever part of them that you do. Um, whatever amount of support for the podcast that you can manage in your day-to-day, I do truly appreciate. Have an excellent week. Get sweaty about comics. Get sweaty about Moon Knight. Enjoy that tomorrow night, Wednesday. Don't spoil it for anybody. Peace.